Welcome back, you guys. I hope you enjoyed General Conference and Easter, and now you're all in to get into the Synoptic Gospels today, because that's where we are. We are in week 15, which is Matthew 15, 16, and 17, and the Mark 7, 8, and 9. And they match up story-wise pretty well. There are a few key differences that I'll be sure to point out, but the theme of these different stories for me was about hope and where hope really comes from. I think the Savior, especially in the, this week's study, starts to get really transparent about his mission. Not that I ever think he was trying to mask it before, but we believe in a line-upon-line gospel, which means he can't teach you everything all at once, and he couldn't teach it to his apostles that way either. They are slowly coming to an understanding of who he is and the mission he is sent here to do. And so he tries to get clearer in these weeks because I think they've established an understanding in all the previous weeks of spending time with him, they're starting to understand who he is, and now he's trying to be really clear about what that means. Because in most of this week's study, we're about six months out from the crucifixion. So this happens, most of this study happens in the fall around the Feast of Tabernacles time. We know that because it's the Mount of Transfiguration, and we'll get into all those details in just a minute. But that tells you that you have about six months left before the Savior's passing occurs and before his resurrection happens. And that means the apostles have to pivot. In fact, one of the phrases I really love from the series, The Chosen, is when the character who plays the Savior says, get used to different, because his gospel is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But that doesn't mean that what we understand about the gospel in our mortal perspective is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It means I'm just getting a line at a time. So I've got to be willing to pivot. You know, just the same way you would on a basketball court, you've got to be willing to be to keep one foot planted and then to be agile to follow him. And you're going to see that this week. Another thing I think you'll see, and this might just be from my perspective, when I listened to conference, the first thing I said to Jason was like, I felt like there were so many talks about making peace and resolving contention and finding a way to like resolve conflicts so that we could seek rest and take some take things to the next level. That's what I saw all throughout this week. I see the Savior trying to teach rest in a different way. He's trying to help people set down what is encumbering them and find hope in what lasts. And that means they're going to have to set down traditions, set down false assumptions about people and groups of people and resolve contention. I think some of that contention is going to be on the inside, it's things they're wrestling with, like doubts and fears and false traditions. And some of it's going to be on the outside, dealing with how they interact with people, how they judge people, and how they carry this work forward. So you're going to see all of that in all of these chapters. So there's a lot of ground to cover. So grab your scriptures, grab your notes. Let's get started, you guys. One of the Savior's best ways to resolve conflict is to teach truth. And that's what he does with the scribes and the Pharisees who are frustrated at the fact that the apostles of the Savior are not going through all the rituals of washing before eating that are customary according to the oral tradition of the Law of Moses. What is really interesting about what the Savior does is he doesn't necessarily get into the weeds about why it is they don't need to do the washing. What he does is he says, here's where you're missing like you are so focused on this smaller thing that you're missing what is bigger. And the bigger thing is there's a commandment to take care of your parents that you're setting aside. Let's focus on what is actually a commandment of God instead of on all this extra that you've created. The visual that helps me understand Pharisees is that show Monk. I don't know if you guys ever watched that show, but it's like, you know, he has this 
obsessive compulsive disorder and he's afraid of germs at all times. And so he is constantly cleaning and constantly washing and it paralyzes him and it makes it so all his relationships are harder. There are lots of good people who end up loving Monk for who he is, but it is a constant struggle for him to create connection with anyone because he's so worried about the germs. And that's kind of how I see the Pharisees. They, they struggle to connect. And what the Savior came to teach us, everything in my gospel is about connection, connecting to God and connecting to your fellow men. And you can't have that if you're constantly worried about the germs. Now, in this situation, they don't see germs like we see germs today, but they are seeing others as unclean. That's why they would be afraid to touch the woman with the issue of blood or to touch the son of the widow of Nain. They would have been afraid to touch those people because they were unclean in some way. Jairus' daughter would have been considered unclean. So they would miss these points of connection. So he's trying to get them to just shed all of that. I also think, just from a female perspective, I wonder if the Savior thinks about the woman at the well who had to struggle and all those other women who have to struggle and walk miles with these heavy jars to bring water in. So if he can teach the scribes and the Pharisees and anyone else who will listen to them that you don't need so much water, you don't need all these extra, we can simplify and make everyone's lives better. So he tries to teach them that. They just don't quite catch it. But he talks to them about honoring their father and their mother and that they shouldn't take their funds that are supposed to be to provide for their parents and put them towards the church in some way, their version of the synagogue or the temple or whatever it is. There were some who were misappropriating their funds. And so he, he tries to show them, look, you're so fixated on these small oral commandments that you've given yourselves, these traditions of men, that you're missing the big commandment that God gave to you, which is to honor your father and your mother. So that's what he kind of tries to teach them. And then he walks through what really defiles. The part that I thought was particularly interesting so when you get down into eight and nine, so it says, this people draw nigh unto me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain, they do worship me, teaching for doctrines, the commandments of men. What I think is interesting about that phrase is doctrines are, there are very few doctrines of God. In fact, Elder Bednar talks about how they're, they are so limited in number. They are key eternal truths that are doctrines of God. And all these other things end up being commandments of men. And we have to be really careful that we're constantly checking these extra commandments we make for ourselves and make sure that we're still, that we're not superseding a commandment from God. And I think we do that sometimes. I think I do that sometimes. I get so fixated on how I think a commandment should be carried out, the, the policies and the practices, that I forget the root commandment itself and I lose sight of things. And I think it lends, it tends to make me judge others. It tends to make me doubt my own understandings. It's just troubling, right? So the antidote to all of this, I feel like the Savior teaches is revelation. In fact, a lot of what we're going to learn this week is about the power of revelation. What you need revelation for, I feel like, is to help you know what your discipleship has to look like. You know, we talked a few weeks ago about understanding what your prescription is. Like We all have the same basic struggles, but we each need to fine-tune our prescription to know exactly what what my discipleship has to look like. And I think that's what he's trying to teach them. He's trying to help them understand that they need revelation in order to know the doctrines. And if they know the doctrines, then they'll know what things they can set aside, what traditions of men they can let go of, and where they should put their focus. 
And if you don't have revelation, and I don't mean just personal, there's personal revelation and also revelation meaning to follow the leaders of the church. When, when you don't have those things, you have 14. So 14 says, let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Meaning if you don't understand and really hold on to the understanding of revelation that God will and does and always has spoken to men. And then when we get of ourselves and when we listen to our prophets and apostles like we did last week, we have access to sight. And any, anywhere else we look for guidance, we can end up being blind leading the blind. So we have to zero in on, on real revelation. And then he tries to teach them what really defiles. So if you go in the next few verses, he talks about it's what's in your heart and what comes out. And their hearts right now are struggling and are darker than they should be because they're constantly judging and they're constantly misusing their time and not focused where he wants them to be. So he's saying, stop worrying about the germs on the outside and focus in. In the second half of Matthew 15, in my margin, I have, this is an hard saying. because I just... This is one of those patches of scripture that's a little bit hard to take in. This is where a Gentile woman approaches the Savior and his apostles, hoping for healing for her daughter, and is sort of pushed back. In fact, the Savior's response to her is, I'm not sent to help you. I'm sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she worships and says, please, Lord, help me. And then in 26, he says, but he answered and said, it is not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Essentially saying, this isn't my work. That's one of those verses I call these, I call these, uh, like, it's like an electrocution verse. Remember how I told you guys in the Doctrine and Covenants that sometimes I have to picture an extension cord when I'm reading hard sayings? Because basically what I've learned is that it, if I go to grab an extension cord and there, the rubber coating is gone or even just worn thin in certain places, you can actually feel a shock, right? That doesn't mean the electricity is bad. It doesn't mean that the intent of the cord was bad. It just means I'm missing the insulation that I'm supposed to have. And that's kind of how I take these verses. In order to really understand them, I need context. Context is that insulation that goes around any scripture story or life of a prophet or life of a savior. I'm missing context. So you can get some context by studying Jesus the Christ and learning how they use the word dog. You can get some context by studying how he treats Gentiles throughout his ministry. You know, we've seen many already. We can get context by understanding the order of the work. And this is where I found the most comfort. Basically, I started picturing the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And that the Savior's strategy was to not dump out the food to all the people. Instead, he created order. He filled the apostles first so that they could go out and fill everybody else. And that's what I think he means when he says, I am sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His work is to fill this chosen covenant people so that they will then go out and fill everybody else. The Gentile woman is one of those people who would have been helped and filled by the apostles as they go out and spread this word to others. It's just not what Jesus was sent to do. That doesn't stop Jesus. She implores him, and he, of course, in his moment of compassion, just overflows and heals. But I think he's trying to teach both his apostles and all the Gentiles that they are valued, that they matter to him, but there is an order to things. And there is a way that the church is going to run. And, and he, I think he's trying to set that precedent so that later down the road, the apostles understand. The reason I think that fits for me is because of what you see in the next part of the second half of Matthew 15, and that's where he feeds 4,000 people, similar to the miracle we saw with the feeding of the 5,000, except for those were all Jews. At least what we understand is that was kind of a, almost a 
not a recreation of manna from heaven, but you know, the Jews saw that as this sign that the Savior had come back, that he was ready to, to lead them to victory. This is different because the feeding of the 4,000 happens in a mixed company. It is Jews and Gentiles, and they are all filled. So I don't think the story of the woman whose daughter is struggling and the Savior redirects her, I don't think this is about how much he loves Jews and how much he loves Gentiles. We know the character of Christ. He loves all of his people, and he intends for the gospel and all the healing and all the blessings that come with it to roll out to everyone. It's just going to take some time. And I think he's trying to help his apostles understand that so that after he's gone, when Peter gets that revelation to take the gospel to all the world, to all the Gentiles, that dream that he has, that it, the revelation, those line upon line learnings that he's getting as an apostle can click into place. And he can say, oh, this isn't just a new dream that I got today. This is something he's been teaching me way back from when we met that Gentile woman with her daughter on the road. You know what I mean? I think he's trying to teach all those things. So you're going to see all of that at the end of chapter 15. The first half of Matthew 16 to me is all about where testimony really comes from. And you see the Savior try to teach this to two different groups. First, you have some sign-seeking scribes and Pharisees. And then later, you have a group of apostles that are with him in Caesarea Philippi. And he teaches the same message, but with vastly different strategies. And the teacher in me just loves it. So in the first half of 16, the scribes are seeking for a sign, but not just any sign. They want a sign from heaven. The reason they specify that they want it from heaven is some scribes and Pharisees believed that any, any miracle that happened on earth could technically be a product of the devil. So therefore, if Christ really wanted to show that he is the Messiah, then he should do something in the heavens. He should make manna fall from heaven. He should do something in the skies. And this is a different kind of sign seeking. And essentially the Savior's response is quick and sharp. And he says, you've had signs enough. Basically what he says is, you see signs in the heavens every day about the weather and you recognize that it's going to, the weather's going to be reactive to what the sky looks like. How can you not apply that to the signs you see everywhere around you? All the miracles, all the healings, the men with palsy who rise up and walk, the woman with the issue of blood who's healed instantly. They've seen signs and they refuse. So basically what he says is, at least the way I read it, is the sign in the heavens that you will see won't come until his crucifixion. So he talks about the sign of Jonas or Jonah, that that's the sign they're going to see. When he is crucified, there will be darkness. There will be storms. There will be terror of sorts that occurs in the skies because of what happens to the Savior. But at that point, it is too late. So unlike the Ninevites who repented and returned to the Lord, these Jews won't. They, they will see the sign of Jonah, but they will not turn and they will not follow, even when they finally do see things happen up in the skies. So he tries to teach them that warning. Then he talks to his apostles about the leaven. This is kind of interesting to me. So it's just really, you're going to see it in um, Mark as well, but basically the apostles misunderstand him or he tries to teach them about leaven, which in this case, we're, before where we talked about leaven being the kingdom of God and it growing and expanding and being a good thing. Most of the time when the Savior references leaven, it's about this slow change that occurs. And it's usually a negative one because that's kind of what happens with yeast. It eats at things and it creates these pockets of air. And that's what he talks about when he's talking about the doctrines of the scribes and the Pharisees, that they will lead to apostasy because they've distorted the doctrines of God and created their own commandments of men. So he's warning about that, but the apostles don't get it. And they think it's because they didn't bring bread. And I just, my heart just went out to them because I feel like this happens to me all the time where I just 
jump to conclusions about what revelations might mean. You know, I get a, an, a slight answer or a, what I think might be an answer and I jump. What I don't realize until later is that he was only beginning to teach me in lines. I I got that first line and I was like, great. <laughs> so I run. And what he often is trying to say is like, Maria, slow down. There's more understanding coming. Just let it settle. And so I think he tries to teach that to his apostles as well. Then they get to Caesarea Philippi, and this is where they have the big discussion about whom do men say that I am. What's cool about this happening in this particular place is this area of Caesarea Philippi, we went there in Israel, it's just this beautiful place that is the beginning of the Jordan River. So long story short, if you don't care about the biology as much as I love it, you remember when we studied natural springs, when we were studying Isaiah, this idea of water coming down onto the mountain, seeping into the soil and getting purified and then bursting forth in some random place. That's a natural spring. That's what happens. That's where the Jordan River comes from. The snow melts in the, on the mountain and it soaks in and then springs forth out of these three natural springs and then becomes the mighty Jordan. The Jordan River that we see today is, at least what I read from geologists this week, it's 2% of its size that it, we think it was at the time of the Savior. So you can't picture the little canal that you can see when you go to Israel today. It was a mighty river and it is fed by these three springs. And that area is Caesarea Philippi. So that's what I love about this discussion. I feel like he's trying to teach the apostles with his words and with the visuals all around him and with the power of the Holy Ghost. And all three are at play. And I'm sure you know how it plays out. So if you look in 15, he saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? First, he wants to know what men say of him. And then he wants to know what his apostles think. Sometimes I think we read this and we think we're not supposed to care what men think. We're supposed to only care what we know. And ultimately, I guess that's true. The, the witness of the Holy Ghost is the most powerful. But I also believe what we read from Alma, that the witnesses of people around you are supposed to fill up your cloud. So I don't think it's wrong that others see him as John the Baptist or as they see him as a great prophet. The apostles who know him best should take all of those wonderings and amazement that people are trying to wrap their heads around and identify and then let it come together to be something more. The visual that helps me <laughs> is... Uh, the Lego movie. So you know how in the Lego movie they have Craggle and it's kind of the nemesis in that movie, but it's this like super glue that holds everything together. That's kind of how I picture my testimony, you guys, especially when I read what Peter says, because basically my testimony comes from what I see and what I hear and what I feel and what I hear from other people. Like my testimony comes from those physical mortal elements all around me and it combines to be this thing, right? This, this beginning testimony. What I love about the witness of the Holy Ghost is it actually creates this seal on my testimony. It is lasting. It is permanent. It is fuller and richer. It fills in all the cracks and crevices that my mortal understanding would have missed. It is something, there is a, a sealing power to the Holy Ghost when it comes to testimony that I find comforting. And I feel like that's, for me, how I read Peter's response. So Simon Peter in 16 says, and Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. I don't know if Peter finally is putting this together in this moment. You know, he's seen the miracles. He's witnessed things with his eyes and his ears, and he knows the character of the Savior. And in this moment, when the Savior asks him, I imagine the Holy Ghost is like, you know, swooping in to seal what Peter has already come to understand about the Savior in this power 
packed seed of truth that is, he is the son of God. And so that's what Peter can testify of. And that's what leads us to where you go next, which is all about why revelation matters so much. But what, what I love about what you see in 17, before we jump ahead is it says, blessed art thou Simon Barjona for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my father, which is in heaven. It's not that it's wrong to take evidences and witnesses from the mortal world around you. Everything denotes there is a God. That's a good thing. We can't let it rest there. We have to take those understandings and then ask and seek and knock. The same way Moroni directs us to take what we've read in the Book of Mormon and then come to the Lord. He doesn't say, just pray about the Book of Mormon before you even begin. He says, read it, study it, start to live it, what the principles that it teaches, and then pray for understanding and answers will come. And I think that's what the Savior was trying to teach here as well, that he wants us to understand where does your belief come from? It isn't coming from just the world around you or just your experiences in this life, or does it come from those experiences plus the gift of the Holy Ghost? And I think in some cases, the gift of the Holy Ghost can even supersede any mortal experience we've had. There are some rare instances when the Holy Ghost has taught me something that I have no understanding of in my physical world. And there is incredible power there. But for me, most of the time, my testimony has come from putting together the Legos of my life and then asking the Lord to seal it with a revelatory experience to help me know that what I think I understand is fully true. And then plus a little bit more. Now that Peter has testified of this witness that didn't come from his mortal experiences with the Savior, and it didn't come from things he saw, but it came from that witness of the Holy Ghost. Now that he has that in place, the Savior will teach him what he will do next. Remember, he's this is line upon line learning. Peter is advancing. And so you see him advance. Basically, what he teaches in 18 is that Peter, it says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's really tempting to read the rock phrase and think that must mean that he's referring to Peter as this foundation stone, but that's not the case. Especially what we get from Joseph Smith teaches that this is all about revelation, that this ability to ask and seek and knock and gain a witness of what the God's will is, is the rock. In fact, what I, when I consider the rock, that phrase, I like to think of it as all the Godhead working at once. When you think about the rock, basically what he's saying here is, you are seeking a witness from your Father in heaven about the Son, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Ghost. So you have all three members of the Godhead working together to connect with men. That is the rock to me. And that's what he's going to build his church on. Because if Peter can understand that process, the same way I felt like when you look in Joseph Smith history, when Joseph Smith gets to that point where after the first vision, there's a mountain of things he has not learned yet and a whole bunch of lines that he has not built onto his testimony. But he knows some things for certain. He knows God is real. He knows Jesus Christ is separate from God and also real and lives. He knows that there is no church he's supposed to join, that there is something else coming. He knows some things for certain because of his experience in the sacred grove. And so he can say to his mother in that moment, I am well enough off. I have learned for myself. He's not done by any stretch, but he knows enough. And that's what Peter is in this spot too. He is, he knows enough that the Lord can build on that foundation that he has created, this foundation of, I know how to connect with my Father in heaven. I know that Jesus Christ is my Savior and that he lives, and I know that the Holy Ghost can witness things to me. That's a steady rock that we can build on. So when you go a little bit further, you're going to see what he's asked to do with that rock. So in 21, this is another pivot point. Basically, the Savior 
now that he has Peter right here and ready and knowing that there's something big that's coming, he's going to receive the priesthood keys. That's what you see in 19. He won't get them today. He's going to get them about a week from now on the Mount of Transfiguration, which in addition to all the other things, I think is kind of interesting that the Savior plants this seed where he says, keys are coming. You will be able to do magnificent things in my name for my work. And it's coming, but it's not yet. And I just think that's the Savior's pattern. So often we get this sacred space to think. I think this week of time gives Peter time to think about what that promise might mean and to sift through his scriptures and try and understand what he means by keys and to study it out and to seek and knock and think. And then he gives him this space to be in a different kind of place. He's not going to give him the keys in this place. He's going to give them the keys in a holy place. So that week of time creates space, mental space for Peter to process what is going to happen and to start asking questions and seeking and knocking and physical space so that they can be in a sacred spot up on a mountain, not in this area of Caesarea Philippi where there's also shrines to other gods and other things. This is a You can see the Savior planting seeds of revelation. And I just love that because that's what we've just been talking about in the the verses before, that sometimes the Savior plants ideas in my mind and they're not a fullness, they're not close, but it's like, Maria, just think about this. And then I wrestle and I think, and then a week later or a month later or a year later, I get another like, oh, (laughs) you know, I just, I love that part about the gospel. What it says to me is he wants a relationship with me. This is something that's going to last eternally and it will never end. And I just think there's comfort in that verse. So then the Savior in this pivoting moment says he starts to teach them very clearly about what will happen in six months. And you can see that in 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. To me, in the side, I wrote transparent teaching because I think that's what the Savior is demonstrating. Because they have an understanding, they have a basis of knowledge about who he is and his work. He can start to teach them bigger doctrines about what will happen down the road. I don't think he was trying to mask any of this before. They just needed a certain spiritual maturity to grasp it. And guys, they still won't fully grasp it, even when he's on the cross. And even when they see him as a resurrected being, they're still processing all this. But you can see him, he's not afraid to teach transparently because simply he doesn't want them to have false hope. He wants them to believe in his gospel and his gospel requires an atonement. So they can't have this. It doesn't work both ways. You have to, you have to believe in what he teaches is the plan of salvation, not some other version. And that's where Peter gets corrected. So Peter hears the Savior talk about how he's going to be suffer at the hands of men and be crucified. Well, it doesn't say crucified, be killed and then come back. And Peter is troubled. In fact, he says in 22, and Peter took him and began to rebuke him saying, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. What I love about this moment with Peter is he's seen the Savior walk on water. He's seen him raise people from the dead. He has seen remarkable miracles. And so to him, the idea I think of the Jews or the Romans even being able to crucify or to kill the Savior seems impossible to him. He's like, you you have the power to stop all of this. I think he's, he's still learning, right? He's still wrapping his head around it. And then you get the Savior's response where he says, basically, get thee behind me, Satan, which is a really strong rebuke. And you can take that as one of those moments where you've grabbed the extension cord and there is a shock. But I actually think it makes a lot of sense. It shows me that they have a, 
a relationship in their leadership structure that he can take a rebuke this harsh and Peter responds because he doesn't go home and wallow. And he, you know, he, he turns and he's like, okay, there's something more I'm supposed to learn here. And the rebuke is that he's supposed to get behind the savior. I don't think this is pushing Peter aside. I think he's reminding him his place in this gospel, his place as an apostle and who will basically be the prophet once the savior is ascended is as someone who follows the Savior. So he needs Peter to get behind him. The same way, oftentimes when we love someone and we see them going through hard times, our first instinct is to say, you don't have to do that. (laughs) Don't do that. We saw that sometimes with Jason's diagnosis. There were several people, even in my family or at church, who would say, he shouldn't be bishop. You should talk to the stake president and get him released because nobody should endure all the heart of chemo multiple times and still be bishop. But they couldn't see what I could see and what Jason could see so clearly that this calling was a gift. It was an exhausting, draining gift. And so whenever someone said that to me, I was basically saying, I need you to get behind me. Like I, there's going to be weak points where I'm going to, I'm going to wish that same thing. So what I need is not someone who like feeds that fire. I need someone who comes behind me and says, Maria, this is the right thing. You know, it's the right thing you've prayed about. It's the right thing. Keep him going, get him back to bishoping like that. That is someone who is on my team. And I feel like that's what the Savior is saying to Peter. He's saying, take that love you have for me that is fueling this frustration and put it behind me. Support this cause and push it forward. In fact, that's what he says to him in 24. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If if Peter wants to show the Savior he loves him, which of course Peter does, this is what this is how the Savior wants him to channel his energy. And that's the same thing. If I have people trying to help me, that's how I want them to channel their energy too. Don't try to channel your energy toward getting the state president to release Jason. Channel your energy towards the work that we are trying to accomplish. Let's do whatever we can to get Jason to be able to do his calling. Get behind me and help help me in this goal. And so then he teaches that epic doc, doc, doctrine almost as a bookend to that thought. So if you look in 25, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? When we as loving, comforting friends or family try to get people to set down the commandments in order to make their life more comfortable, this is the risk we're we're putting out. We're saying exchange your soul for comfort. And that's not the doctrine. It's hard. It's hard as a friend and a family member to see that clearly. But I think the Savior is a really beautiful example of it. He loves Peter. He knows Peter loves him and needs Peter to channel his love towards the work that God gave him to do rather than any other comfort he might find. I read a quote from James E. Talmadge that basically said, what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration is almost incomprehensible. (laughs) So the very fact that we're going to try and teach it with such limited verses is tricky. Not not that it's not worth our attention. I just think it's really important to remember that the Mount of Transfiguration, what happens in this sacred, holy place is sacred and holy and not fully revealed. In fact, that's what Joseph Smith teaches. I can't I think it's in DNC 63. He talks about how we don't have all the details of what occurred on this mount. That in addition to Peter receiving the keys of the priesthood, all the apostles will eventually receive the priesthood, these keys. But in addition to that transfer happening, you know, because this is this is that holy place where Jesus is transfigured. His whole appearance changes. Much like we saw with Moses in the Old Testament and Abinadi in the Book of Mormon, his countenance is 
Right. Joseph Smith describes it almost like they're seeing him in his celestial form or in his godlike form, meaning like maybe he's been masked this whole time during his condescension. And this is when they get to see the real the real God that they have been walking with um, in this key moment. And then they, Moses and Elias and potentially other heavenly beings like John the Baptist in some it just depends on who you read and when you read it. But there are heavenly beings who come to restore these keys. And because the Savior has essentially six months left. And so he's setting the stage for the time when Peter will need to lead this church. And that these three who will become basically the first presidency of the church that Christ established in his time will need these keys. And that's sort of what happens. In addition to that, Joseph Smith talks about how they see the earth in its glorified form. That they, Joseph F. Smith talks about how they, he believes they receive their endowments at this time. Great and grand things happen on the Mount of Transfiguration. We just don't have all of them at our fingertips. So I think you have to read these verses with a wide lens and an understanding that what is sacred and preserved isn't for us to pry into and guess at. <laughs> that's, that's sort of how I approach it. So you'll see all that play out. I really love the interaction with the apostles and the Savior on the Mount. So what you do have in the verses is you see Peter's response. So he sees, Joseph Smith talks about how Moses and Elias or Elijah are called to help bolster the Savior and to strengthen him for the big work that is ahead of him and, and restore the keys. But both, both of those things happen. So Peter says in verse 4, Peter said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make thee three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias. This is the Feast of the Tabernacles time. So that's the time, if you've seen The Chosen, there's an episode about this where they build tents essentially outside and they they celebrate together. You can go more into the Old Testament and learn about it. But I, what I love is, I don't know if this is why Peter thinks he's there or if he's just trying to stall them so they'll stay longer. Maybe he's trying to stretch out this divine moment just as long as possible. I don't know. But I think it's almost similar to what we see with Joseph Smith in the first vision. I think he came to the grove expecting or hoping, I would say, to receive forgiveness of his sins, to feel settled about who he is connected to God, and to know which church to join. He had no idea when he walked into that grove that he was going to get an answer that, no, you're not going to join any of those churches. I think sometimes Peter is in that same spot where he's like, "Do you? it's good that we're here. Do you want us to build you things? And, and the Savior's response is, is... Uh, actually, I guess he doesn't he doesn't technically respond. What you hear is a response from Heavenly Father himself, one of those rare moments in Scripture, also like the sacred grove, when you hear Father in heaven testify of his beloved Son. So if you see in 5, while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice came out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Doesn't that feel like the sacred grove? I think Peter has a mighty work to do, and he's going to need keys and authority to do it, and he's going to need understanding, and I feel like he came to this mount maybe expecting, similar to what Joseph Smith expected, to get some light and some knowledge, and instead he's going to get a boatload. <laughs> he's going to understand a lot more about the plan of salvation because of this experience, and I think the reaction to that much light and knowledge all at once is you fall on your face and you're afraid. That's what happens in six. They fell on their face and were sore afraid. And then Jesus came and touched them and said, arise, be not afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. That's the beauty of revelation to me, that there are times when, especially when I have a mighty work to do in my family or in a calling or just in a work I felt called to do, where you, you feel this overflowing revelation that comes. For me, it's not quantity. It's the depth of the revelation. I felt clear, clear direction. And 
sometimes it scares me a little. <laughs> sometimes my reaction, much like the shepherds in the field when they see the angel, you know, outside Bethlehem, they are afraid. And I love that the Savior's constant reaction when we are afraid is to reach down and to say, it's okay, arise. You know, it's the same thing Peter felt in the water. In this moment, they, he is sinking. He's like, I, I don't know if he can kind of start to see his calling and what, what it's really going to be like when the Savior isn't there. And he feels like he's sinking in this weight of this calling. I don't know. That's me projecting. But I think it's beautiful that the Savior's response is arise. And he touches them and he brings them up. And then they go down the mountain together. That's the other beauty of the gospel. It's that these mountaintop moments, these moments where we are so close to where the veil just feels thin, the Savior comes back with you out of those. We don't leave the Savior at the temple when we experience holy places. He comes with us, right? We have his words. We have his prophets with us. We have, he comes with us and down the mountain. And I think you see that with these apostles too. I can't imagine how hard it was to go down that mountain and to know what they were going down towards, both for the Savior who will suffer and die and deal with all those things in the next six months, and for the apostles who, as they inch closer to that timeline, see the weight of their calling getting heavier and heavier. And I just, I can't imagine quite what that would be like, but I think it's beautiful that they go down together. Sometimes your your descent from the mountain is abrupt and jarring. I felt that many times when I come back from the temple and you're like, back into reality, your house is a wreck and the kids are fighting. <laughs> you know, it's just real life in this fallen world that we live in. And I, you see that with the Savior and these apostles as well. When they come down off the mountain out of this holy place, there is some contention and struggling amidst the apostles who were down lower. You know, almost like we saw with Moses, how he brought some people up all the way up the mountain. The three who will come in the first presence, he go with him up the Mount of Transfiguration. The other apostles are down here trying to help help everybody else. And one of the ways they're trying to help is there's a man who has a son who is taken with a devil. It's described differently in Matthew and Mark, but essentially it's, they describe him as a lunatic. So he's having fits of some kind that end up causing him to tumble into fires and into water. And his father is at wit's end and is struggling. What's tricky about the, the apostles is he had brought his son to the apostles and they couldn't heal him. And so there's struggle. I imagine this is one of those spots where there's inner contention and outer contention. I just think in the Father's heart, there's got to be some worry about why the apostles couldn't. For me, anytime I seek a healing blessing for me or for someone in my family and we don't receive it, my first reaction, and I'm sure this comes from the adversary, is like, it's probably because of me. It's probably because I didn't have enough faith or it's probably because I didn't do scripture study or, you know, like you come up with a whole bunch of dumb reasons for why things don't happen the way you think they should. And I wonder if that contention is welling up in the hearts of this father and also in the apostles who can't do what they wanted to do. This is almost like a contrasting story with the woman, the Gentile woman we read about in the earlier parts of Matthew. This is a father who's bringing his son and he is a Jew. And so you'd think the stories would align and he would get healing, but the apostles can't do it. The interesting thing is what happens next. So when you go in the verses, it says, and Jesus rebuked the devil and he departed out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. And then in 19, then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, why could we not have cast him out? Which is a very natural question. And then the Savior's response is interesting. He says in 20, and Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief, which if you go on the footnotes, you can see that in the Greek, this is little faith or doubts because of your little faith, this growing beginning faith and the doubts that are creeping in. I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place and it shall remove and nothing shall be impossible to you. I think this is just my reading of this. 
I wonder sometimes if what the Savior is frustrated at is that it is the Father who brings the Son to the Savior and not the apostles themselves. When they struggled to heal him, they didn't immediately bring him to the Savior. It's the Father who brings him. And I wonder, this is just me, but I wonder if that's his frustration. If there is something you can't accomplish in your calling that I have called you to do, come to me. Seek help. Ask. Seek. Knock. Find out what you could have done better. What they're going to learn is they should pray and fast. Those are amplifying powers that will help them do better in these miracles that they're trying to perform. But they didn't come to him first. The father had to come and bring the son. So I wonder if he's trying to teach the apostles that order in his response. Because he's teaching them about mustard seeds. We're talking about this in the object lessons, but this idea of like, it's not so much about the size of your faith that matters. It's that you let Christ shine through whatever faith you have, and then it expands. You know, it is, it is about letting Christ access what faith you currently have and letting it grow because of that. And we're going to see that a little bit better in Mark, but I think you get a taste of it here in Matthew as well. So they learn a little bit about prayer and fasting. And then at the end of this, you're going to see about the tribute money and the fish. This is just one of those remarkable add-on miracles. I, I don't, I'm not entirely sure I understand what it's trying to teach me, but basically there's a tribute that's due at the temple that all Jewish males are supposed to pay. And so when the apostles are approached by the tax collectors to say, doesn't Jesus pay this tribute? And they ask Jesus, he says, you know, this is my father's house. And normally a person who's, it is their house, they don't pay tribute. But in order to keep the peace, we're going to do something different. So that's when you flip the page and you see in 27, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea. And this is when he directs Peter to go and cast the hook in and catch one fish. And the first fish he catches, there will be a coin in it that he can pay tribute. It's just this weird, miraculous story. But the, the favorite part for me, because of what we learned in conference, or at least what I learned from conference, is what you see at the beginning. He says, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go to the sea. There are many ways to solve a problem. And all of them are are doable to the Lord. He could have handled this in lots of different ways, but his course is to choose not to offend. He's going to find a way to accomplish what needs to be accomplished without compromising his values or the commandments of God and not offend. And isn't that what all of us are seeking in our relationships with our fellow men? That we can find a way to not compromise our commandments of God and find a creative approach to not offend. And I think that's what the Spirit teaches us to do. For me, I've seen this in some key instances where I, I pray to the Lord to help me understand how I can show love to someone better or how I can resolve conflict better without compromising what I know is true and still trying not to offend. And I think there are answers. It's not perfect. And there are times when offense will happen and has to happen. But I think there are creative approaches to, to fill in that middle where there are, there are more potential choices at my disposal than sometimes I think of. I never would think of getting coin out of a fish's mouth. And there's sometimes in life, I feel like when I pray to help resolve contention, that he gives you uncommon solutions that if you just have the trust to like try it, you see a miracle sort of play out. Thankfully, Matthew set the stage for us. We know the basics of the storyline, so we can go a little bit faster through Mark. But there are a few key things that jumped out at me I didn't want you to miss. For example, when he's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees having trouble with the disciples and the apostles not going through those washing rituals, I really like what it says in 2. It says, And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, unwashed in hands, they found fault. I 
that phrase finding fault is, I think, a warning for me. I think we hear the prophets warn about this all the time, especially when they're talking about wrestling with doubts or questions about the gospel or about church history. And this idea of like, you can read through a lens of I'm trying to find fault, or you can read through a lens of I'm trying to grow my faith. It doesn't mean that you pretend that there aren't questions there. It means you Rest on what you do know. You let the Holy Ghost teach you what is lasting and what is true while you sift out or even sometimes set on a shelf what you don't understand. There is something powerful about choosing to not find fault. And so you see where that goes for the scribes and the Pharisees. It's the same kind of problem and the same dilemma that they're having where they're setting aside the commandment of God to honor their parents and take care of them in place of doing what is more showy and obvious by donating their funds and going through these big rituals. So the Savior tries to teach them about it. I do really like the way it's phrased in 8. For laying aside the commandments of God, ye hold the tradition of men. This is when he's talking about they're getting so into the washing of things and trying to wash the Gentileness off of anything they touched. And it's that phrase of that ye hold to the traditions of men that I liked. I think this is essentially what happens anytime I loosen my grip on the iron rod. In order to hold tight to any doctrine of men, I have to let go of the iron rod. I have to let go of something I believe is true or important over here. And you can't do both. You can't serve two masters. We learned that. So I think he's trying to help them understand, like, you've let go of this one so that you could reach this unimportant commandment you've made yourself way over here come back and cling to the rod. In fact, that's why I love how it's written in the Book of Mormon, because it talks about clinging to the rod, that there will be times when you're tempted to loosen your grip so that you can grab something over here that seems good. And he's saying, cling to the rod. If you cling to the rod, you'll never hold to the the traditions of men. So he warns them about that. Another one I love is in 13. He says, because they've chosen to set aside the commandments of God and follow these traditions of men, they are making the word of God of none effect. Oh, this one was cool to me, you guys, because I feel sometimes when my faith has faltered a little bit in the past and I stop feeling the goodness of the Holy Ghost. You know, there are times when other people will talk about that they feel the Spirit so strong and they're in a room and the Spirit is there. And when I'm in a place of struggle, which has been a few different spots in my adulthood where I'm wrestling with things, I don't feel what they feel. And I think what I've learned over the past many years of this process is Oftentimes it means I have stopped choosing to be an active disciple. I've chosen to get really cerebral and to think about things a lot, but to stop going through the motions of what discipleship looks like. I stop doing my callings as well. I stop reading my scriptures. I stop praying to, for any kind of meaning. I stop in a lot of ways. And what happens then is then the blessings of the gospel have none effect. The same way we saw in Nazareth, where because they chose not to believe in Jesus Christ, he couldn't perform miracles there. What's tricky about that is oftentimes when we're in that spot of kind of an apostasy slump, what happens is we start to say like, none of this is real. I don't feel anything. Yeah, I, I, There are times I've put that in my head, you know, like either everybody out here is faking it like at a hypnotist show, or I, I don't get it. And neither of those is good. And I feel like what he's trying to help us understand is like, you're choosing to not carry out your belief. What you know to be true is actually neutralizing the Spirit's power to witness to you. You're not going to be able to see these signs until you believe and act on those beliefs. And then you will know. But you've got to plant those seeds. And so I feel like he's trying to teach that lesson to his apostles and also to the scribes and the Pharisees. 
Another thing he talks about is setting aside some things. So if you look in 20, it says, and that which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. And you jump down to 23. And all these evil things come from within and defile the man. He's talking about how all these sins come from within. You're worried about what's on the outside and what others can see. You got to go turn into the heart. For me, this sounds just like what you read in the Book of Mormon, where this the natural man is an enemy to God. I don't think he's saying everything in us is wicked or you know evil. What he's saying is, you're in a fallen world and you're a natural man. You're going to have a tendency to slide. So you need to yield. That's what that verse teaches in the Book of Mormon. The natural man is an enemy to God unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. So that theme of you need revelation. You need revelation from prophets. You need revelation to your own heart to understand what is true. You need revelation so you know how to yield and when to yield and what that yielding looks like for you personally. And I feel like that's what he's trying to teach these scribes and these Pharisees who won't even listen to him, but he still feeds them these little gems of wisdom, probably for our benefit. (laughs) So I, I love those verses. You go a little bit further when you go into 27, it says, but Jesus said unto her, let the children be filled first. So this is that interaction with the Gentile woman. And I think what's powerful about this I read recently that when you think about the brother of Jared, he is also a Gentile. Because remember, he lived before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's way before. And he is someone that the Savior, when he encountered the Savior, he almost seems, the Savior is almost surprised that he was there. You know that part that you read in Ether where he's just, he's delighted. But it's, I think Elder Holland called him a, a wonderful but uninvited guest. <laughs> Meaning like all the other prophets who came to see God face to face were invited and to this opportunity. And the brother of Jared seems to like make his way there on his own. It's just this remarkable anomaly in scripture. But sometimes I wonder if there's a little bit of that in this story of the woman with the daughter, that she also is a Gentile, but her faith is so strong that all she cares about is the crumbs. You know, to me, it's almost like the metaphor she uses is he says, you know, I can't take the bread that's intended for my the children of my kingdom. If you look in the footnotes in the Joseph Smith translation, it's intended for the children of my kingdom. I can't give it to the dogs. It's for those who are covenant-keeping people. Those blessings are available through covenants. And she says, I'll just take the crumbs. You know, like, that's her response. And it feels to me like the woman with the issue of blood who's like, I just need the, I, I just want to touch the fringe. Like I have enough faith in you, even though I don't know you like others do in your faith. I have enough faith to believe that if I just got the crumbs, that could help my daughter. And I think when the Savior sees that kind of faith, the same way when he saw the brother of Jared's faith, he was like, okay, I can't keep anything from you anymore. It's like the gates are open and miracles happen in those moments, even in the lives of Gentiles, which I think is pretty remarkable. After the Gentile woman's daughter is healed, there's this little mini miracle that happens at the end of Mark 7 that you just don't want to miss. It's this healing of a man who is deaf and who can't speak or has a speech impediment of some kind. And it's the manner of healing that kind of calls out to me. Basically, the Savior touches him. So he takes him away from the multitude in 33, and he put his fingers into his ears, and he spit, and he touched his tongue. And then he looks up to heaven and commands him to be opened. And then he is. And the miracle is he speaks plainly, you know, kind of the same way the man with palsy is able to get up and walk, and the man at Bethesda is able to pick up his bed, like it's this instant fix. But what I love about this one is the way he interacts with this man who can't hear. I wonder if this is, you know what we read about in the Book of Mormon and even the Doctrine and Covenants about how the Savior teaches people in their own language and in their own way of understanding. I think there's a piece of that here where he's trying to, maybe this man communicates with signs. I don't, I don't know, but I think his way of healing him is customized to this man and to his needs and his understanding. And I just love that about the Savior. 
I also love that he speaks plainly because like all those other miracles, it proves that God has power over time. Jesus Christ is someone who can take what should take physical therapy months or years to correct and he can he can heal it and he can make up for time. To me, this is just as miraculous as the water turning to wine, something that also should have taken time. Going from not being able to speak and be understood by anyone to speaking plainly is power over time. And that's a remarkable miracle we should not pass by. In Mark 8, you see some of the similar stories we've read before about the feeding of the 4,000, the teaching about leaven, that thou art the Christ, all of those big moments. And then there's a couple of new things added in. First, I love in two that you get the source of his caring for this big multitude of Jews and Gentiles, that this he has compassion for them. They're hungry. And because they're hungry, he will have them filled. And it doesn't matter who they are or where they come from, he wants them to be filled. And I think that's compassion is the root of all of his goodness, his charity, that pure love he has for men, mankind, it just can't be contained. And that creates this miracle of feeding of the 4,000. I also think it's interesting that you learn, well, in both accounts, you learn that there are seven baskets left over. One of the scholars I read talked about how seven in Hebrew terms is perfection, right? Seven days of the creation. Seven means fully finished and complete. And there's something really lovely about when the Savior chooses to feed Jew and Gentile together in this mixed multitude, there is a sense of completion. I wonder sometimes if some of the Jews thought this was a miracle that was just theirs. You know, like the feeding of the 5,000, if they thought that was a miracle that was reserved for the Jews, because they have history. You know, the manna falls from heaven. It's. I wonder if some bristled at the fact that this is a miracle he will do, not just for the Jews, but for all. But I think it's, you know, like the parable of the laborers of the vineyard. I think he's trying to warn all of us that this is the gospel. The gospel is all can come unto Christ at any time. When they are ready, they can come and we will welcome them and fill them. And in fact, his work can't be complete until all are full. And I, I think there's a really beautiful parallel spiritually in that story. You're also going to see the, the instruction about the Pharisees and the leaven and warnings about apostasy that the apostles are trying to understand. But what's interesting about the Mark account is he uses this almost an object lesson of a healing. So he heals a man who is blind and he's teaching the apostles at the same time. In fact, it seems to me that he's taking this opportunity to perform a miracle to help bolster this man who was blind and also help his disciples and apostles understand Revelation better. Because this is a miracle that we see happen in stages, which is really rare. In fact, this might be the only one, the only one that comes to my mind, where this man is approached. He's a blind man who, who's brought to the Savior, and it, it, his healing happens in stages. So in 23, and he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And 24, and he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. To me, this is almost like that first layer of revelation, or the first few layers even, you can see some form and some shape. You get a feel of where God wants you to go. And it's what you do in this moment that I think makes a pivotal difference. At least it has for me. Because this man could have seen men as trees walking and been terrified and run the other way and said, I'd rather be blind. You know, I don't want this fuzzy vision. And I think what's pivotal is that he stays and then the Savior can give him added light and added knowledge. So he looked up, he sees this, and then in 25, after that, he put his hands again on his eyes and made him look up and he was restored and saw every man clearly. When we choose to stay, when when things seem fuzzy, we 
sacrifice something. We choose to give what our mortal understanding is over to the Lord and say, I trust that when you touch this, there will be clarity. And I think those moments when we choose to lean into uncertainty like that and approach the world and say, it's okay if my vision's a little bit fuzzy in this spot because I know so much else about the Savior and I know that he can make all things work together for my good. And I know, you know, like there's been a lot of times when my prayers are, I wake up and my eyes are a little fuzzy. <laughs> I can't, I can tell he's had an impact on me, but I, the, the, I see men as trees and I can't see clearly. And that's those moments where you have to lean in and say, I trust that there is more light and more knowledge coming. So I'm going to stay. And that's what he does. And his revision, his vision is restored and not just restored, but restored clearly. Now he can see clearly. So to me, it's an object lesson about how revelation comes, which is beautiful because at the end of this chapter, this is where you see them talk about whom do men say that I am. And you hear Peter's witness of the Holy Ghost about him being the Christ. The addition that you get in Mark 8 that I would call your attention to is in 38. So it says, whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. It's this added warning of, it's not just about losing yourself in service, it's about choosing not to be ashamed. It's about hushing your fears and embracing the middle vision moments and saying that I can I can trust that there is more clarity coming and I will continue and I will not be ashamed. I think there's power when we take that stance. Beginning of Mark 9 is all about the Mount of Transfiguration again, so we're not going to go too deep into it, also because it's not fully revealed. But thankfully, we do get a few things in the Mark account that you don't get in the Matthew account, primarily because of the additions of Joseph Smith. So if you look in the Joseph Smith translation all over Mark, you're going to see a lot of changes this week. In particular, there's a few key ones. So if you look in 9 verse 2, I really, I really like this one. It's not necessarily a critical doctrine, but I just think it teaches you something about what the Savior has been trying to teach us throughout all these chapters about asking and seeking and knocking. Because this is where you learn that after six days, Jesus taketh him up with him, Peter, James, and John, and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And then when you go down, the phrase, and he leadeth them, if you go down to the footnotes, you can see Joseph Smith's translation, who asked him many questions concerning his sayings, and Jesus leadeth them. I love this piece. Like on their way up the mountain, they're asking questions. This is what inspired that thought for me in the Matthew account, where you see that Jesus gives them a week. He says to Peter, I'm going to give you the keys. You're going to lead this church in my way. And it's not going to happen yet. In fact, he doesn't tell him when it's going to happen. So I imagine Peter, like, for me, I just picture him like sifting through all the scrolls he can find and asking questions. And like, he is trying to understand what this means on his way up the mountain, which I love because I feel like that every time I go to the temple, <laughs> like I am constantly like, I don't think I'm getting this. I'm sure I'm going to, I'm going to go and do this sacred thing. And I want, there are things I want to understand about my life or my circumstances. So I come to the temple with questions. I come with seeking and even expecting to find not full answers, but at least additional light and knowledge. And I'm telling you guys, when I come with that perspective, the temple experience changes for me. I'm sure you felt something similar, but I love that addition from Joseph Smith. Another key addition is in verse four. This is where you learn that in addition to Moses and Elijah, John the Baptist is there, which is 
different than what you see in the other accounts, and it's not corrected in the Matthew account. And I don't know exactly why he's there. I think it's one of those things that are that's going to be revealed. I, I think it has to do with priesthood, same way John the Baptist restored the Aaronic priesthood, and Peter, James, and John restored the Melchizedek. I'm sure there's connections there that I don't know why they're there, but I think it's important that it is there. The way Elder Holland described it in his book is he says, Moses and Elias, no, he said, at least Moses and Elias were there as well as other heavenly beings. And I'm like, okay, that's a good way to phrase. <laughs> so there's, there's more happening here that we don't have the full story, but at some point we will. And I love that this is essentially men as trees walking, right? Like I can read these verses and it's a little fuzzy to me and I don't fully understand it, but it's better than what I saw before I had revelation from Joseph Smith. And before I had a witness from Mark's account, I am getting clearer vision. It's just not fully clear yet. But if I take those questions and concerns to the Lord, I can get more clarity. And I think that's the promise that you see play out in the verses. So they have questions after this experience about what rising from the dead will mean. That's what you see in 10. I thought this was kind of interesting because they seem baffled by the fact that the Savior will be able to resurrect himself. And I wonder if this is them trying to wrestle with what resurrection really means. I mean, he's already shown them that he can help people rise from the dead. That is very different than a resurrected being who is eternally connected, body and spirit, never to be separated, never to die, never to experience pain, glows, you know, like all the things we've seen, all the data points we have in the scripture. I think they're trying to understand what that means. And so they're wrestling and questioning with each other about what it is. And then they question him about Elias, kind of like we saw in the Matthew account about forerunners and who they are, and is he a forerunner? And you get more clarification. You can go in the notes and learn a little bit more. But I really love the way it plays out. If you go a little bit further down in 15, it says, And straightway, all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, running to him and saluting him. Now, this is just me theorizing here, but do you remember when we read in the Old Testament that when Moses came down from Sinai, his face was glowing to the point that they asked him to veil his face because it was, you could see the goodness that he had experienced on the temple in his countenance. And I wonder sometimes if that's what's happening with the Savior here as well, that that type of experience stays. Not forever, and it's certainly not visible to everyone, but there is something. I listened to a beautiful talk from Elaine Dalton this week, where she talks about this, that the goodness in your life, when you choose to live as he would have you live, it shines out of you, and you can't really contain it. <laughs> you you don't get to pick how much you shine. I think you see that with the Benedite. It's like he, I don't think he's even aware of his countenance. Others are, and Alma responds to it, but I just think there's something beautiful about that little verse to me. You go a little further and you see that situation with the son. What I love about the Mark account is when the father approaches the son, you get a little more detail in Mark. So this is when you hear, you'll probably hear Elder Holland's words resonating in your ears because he's got that beautiful talk that's all about this story. But this is when the man approaches the apostles who couldn't heal his son. And so then he approaches the savior and, and it plays out beautifully. So if you look in 21 and he asked his father, how long is it since this came unto him? And he says of a child. So the savior comes to the father and says, how long has this been happening? And the dad says all his life, basically. And oftentimes it cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. It's the harmony of 22 and 23 that I loved when I studied this week. He knows the Savior can do things. He doesn't know what the Savior can do. In fact, the Elder Bernard talked about that maybe this father isn't struggling with his faith that the Savior can heal. Maybe he's struggling with the faith to believe that the Savior would heal him, his family, his individual circumstances. And that I could relate to. I don't think there have been very few moments where I've doubted the power of God. 
Sometimes I doubt my ability to be worthy of the power of God or my ability to be seen by God. That maybe other people are getting revelation and understanding and I just, it just doesn't work for me. <laughs> like there, we all get in those spots. So I love that, especially when you pair it with 23, because the Savior uses his same phrase. So the father in 22 said, if thou canst do anything, have compassion. And what the Savior says in 23, 23 is, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to them that believe. He's trying to help this father understand it is your faith that will fuel this miracle. My priesthood power is at work, but I need your faith in order for it to happen. Do you have enough faith to believe? And this is when the father cries out, 24. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. There are a few phrases in scripture that I think are more tender than that one. I just think we all understand it, right? We all to some degree see through a glass darkly and we are struggling to believe. And I love this promise that if what the savior is saying is this father's faith even though he thinks it's insufficient, is enough. Because here's what I learned more clearly this week with the help of the Spirit and from reading some prophets. I, what the Savior is teaching here is he's saying, what faith do you do have? You are held to the standard of the faith that you currently have. So use it. Use that little window of faith that you have right now and let my light shine through it. If you can do that, then it, I can work with that. You don't have to have mountain-moving, gigantic faith to have miracles happen in your life. You just have to act on the faith that you do have. And that I think is what the father is able to do in that moment. He's able to say, there are a lot of things I don't understand and I don't know how to lean on those. So I'm just going to lean on what I know. If thou canst do all things, have compassion. If you can do anything, have compassion on us. And because he chooses to believe in this moment and ask the Lord to help him with what he doesn't understand, miracles come. That's a promise. That whatever our vision looks like in these middle moments, that we, when we lean on him and say, I know you can help, there's power in that promise. Because we can trust that we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to understand everything all at once. We just have to act on the faith that we do have. Act on the testimonies that you do have. Stand up and testify of what you do know, even if it's smaller than what everybody else knows. And that's when you see expansion miracles happen. And you see it in the life of this father and son as well. And it's just one of the most beautiful in all scripture to me. And I think he's using it to teach this father and this son and the apostles about his work. And this is where he also adds in that additional piece about prayer and fasting. In fact, what I love, I can't remember which prophet I read. They talked about fasting being a voluntary mini famine, that you are essentially depleting yourself of comfort so that you can relate. It's what we read about in Isaiah. Remember when he was talking about, this is not the fast I've chosen? What is it? Is this not the fast I've chosen? We talked about this in the Old Testament. It's Fasting is supposed to give us compassion for those who are without, so that we will then overflow with compassion the way the Savior does and give abundantly. It's not just about going without so we can get answers to our own prayers. It's also so that we can have the power we need to do good. I love this idea of prayer and fasting being this supercharge to my prayers. In fact, it reminded me of a visual. I was running a family 5k with, with Sam back when he was little and he saw all the sewer grates that were in the street, like power-ups, you know, like he was playing some kind of Mario game. And so when we were running, he would go and deliberately find the sewer manhole covers and jump on them and be like, power up. And then he would surge forward. And I think prayer and fasting is like that. I think when we're hoping for miracles, prayer and fasting is like this power up. It's this little bounce I can get on 
to give me some more oomph for the miracles that I so desperately need or for the revelation to help me understand why the miracles didn't come the way I thought they would. Both of those things are miraculous gifts from the Spirit and both are amplified when we turn to prayer and fasting as a source. One of the ways the Savior can resolve contention inside is by helping me see truth. And I think that's what he's doing with this transparent teaching in 31. It's the same thing we saw in Matthew. He's not beating around the bush. He's teaching his apostles clearly that he will suffer at the hands of men. They will be able to kill him and he will rise again. In my mind, when you teach truth with the Spirit, meaning you're going to have to customize this to the learner that you're trying to approach, when you do that well, I feel like you're comforting in advance. The apostles are going to go through what would be like a PTSD, right? When they see their Savior crucified and spit on and struggling and eventually die. The same thing that the, the certain women who follow him will struggle and have this weight. And if they can cast their mind back, or if the Holy Ghost more accurately can help them cast their mind back to these moments of truth where the Savior taught them clearly, they can get comfort in that moment, even though the Savior isn't there. And I think there's power in that promise. I think it's why we need to teach the gospel clearly to our families and our classes. We can't soft pedal it. We can't customize it to make it more comfortable to their ears. We have to teach truth because what we really are teaching is how to find comfort, not just in this moment, but always. And if I customize the doctrine to what would be comfortable to a teenager now, it won't help him when he's 30. I need the true doctrine that lasts throughout time. And I think you see the Savior teach that beautifully when he says it so plainly to his apostles. And then they have that same discourse, but there's an interesting addition in Mark about who is the greatest. So the apostles are questioning who, who is the greatest among them. I don't even know. In this one, it doesn't make it sound like they're wondering which apostle is the greatest. I just wonder if they're wondering how to get greatness. I don't know. But his answer is the same thing we read from King Benjamin about service in 34. But they held their peace for along the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the 12 and saith unto them, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And then in 37, whosoever shall receive one of the children, my name receiveth me. And whosoever receiveth me, receiveth not me, but him that sent me. If you want to be seen in if you want to be made great in the eyes of God, you need to have humility. That's what the Josephine translation teaches on that verse about children. It's all about humility. It's all about service and giving over. There's this great quote from President Hinckley. I can't, I can't cite it. It's not written in my margin, but he basically said, do you want to have a happier life? Then lose yourself in this gospel. Like Choose to serve and give and do whatever the Lord asks you to do, and you'll find joy. And I love that promise. When you flip the page, you see another warning about little ones. So this is in 42. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that shall that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and were cast into the sea. I gotta tell you guys, I have always read this verse about abuse. And I think it can apply there. In fact, we've heard it used by 70s and apostles in that way. But it's the, the part that they believe in me that jumped out at me this time. This isn't just a verse about not taking care of children. It's a verse of hurting the faith of children. Those children who have this childlike faith, when we crush it or when we derail it by teaching false doctrine or by not teaching at all, when we derail the faith of someone who is beginning, and I don't think it just means a child. I think it's anyone who has a beginning faith. If we then crush that faith or derail it or dilute it, we are at risk of condemnation. Millstones are heavy. <laughs> so I just, I'd never read it that way before, which changes how you read the rest of the verses. 
Because this is where he talks about if uh, your hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. It's this, you need to be in line with what the gospel teaches. In fact, the Joseph Smith translation of these verses focuses on leadership, that this is kind of the I can't remember which prophet I read, but it said that these verses form the basis of church discipline of sorts for leaders, that you can't have someone guiding the church who who isn't fully on board. So if there's something about you or your personality or your hobbies or whatever that that gets in the way of what is true, cut it off. You know, Elder Holland talked about this in one of his talks where he's like, I know we want a comfortable doctrine and people teach that Jesus is a comfortable God, but He's the same one who says, like, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. <laughs> like, bury your weapons. Do whatever it takes to become a more devoted disciple of Christ. Because I think the inherent promise is whatever joy you thought you were going to get from that hand or that eye or that foot is nowhere near the joy that is available to you if you choose to sacrifice it in order to become more like he is. Joy is found when we are like he is. And if I have to make some big cuts to make that happen, I should do it. Welcome back, everybody. Okay, this is the creative side of week 15. So I've got three object lessons to help you get your classes or your families to understand these doctrines just a little bit better. But let me walk you through the preview first. This is just going to kind of touch on each of the object lessons and give you a supplies list. And then for those of you who are in the full course, you'll be able to see after this video another 15-20 minutes about how to pull off each one individually. But let me walk you through the basics. Okay, the first one that I thought really needed attention, it's in the Come Follow Me manual as well, is what are keys? And why did Peter receive them on the Mount of Transfiguration? The Savior talks about giving them to Peter, and then a week later, he actually receives them on the Mount. And this is a pivotal, critical doctrine to understand the priesthood and how it applies to us today. The tricky thing is it's hard to teach it, especially because there's not very many visuals other than a key. So I wanted to create some analogy that would help you teach it to your families and classes. So I've created a way to teach big concepts of the priesthood in small bite-sized ways to help your family understand it. And then I've provided printable tools for you to pull that off. So these are just basically cards that will walk you through how to teach your kids about what the priesthood is, what is that power of God, what are priesthood keys, what is priesthood authority, and how does that apply to each and every one of us? So I'll walk you through it in just a minute. The second one, you can't teach this week without talking about mustard seeds. I just, I've been waiting for this one because we've talked about mustard seeds being about the kingdom of God in the past, but I love this approach about faith, that if you have faith as must, a grain of a mustard seed, then you can move mountains. I especially love it because of what we've learned from President Nelson. So I wanted a quick visual so that your kids could understand it. So this week in the printables, you have a couple things. First off, I just thought it would be cute to have a little seed packet so that you could give your kids actual mustard seeds and show them how incredibly small they actually are. I bought these for a couple dollars at Walmart. You could fill up many, many seed packets with these, but I actually wanted something that's not just a, a handout. I wanted to give you a tool to teach the concept. So that's what these cards are. They fit neatly into these little seed packets, but they're designed to shine light through so that you can project light through that little tiny window of a mustard seed. So you need a strong flashlight, ideally a kind of a smaller one, and then the couple cards that are on the printable and you'll be good to go for that one. The last one, guys, it's game week. And you know, I love game week. So this is to help you teach that principle that we see beautifully in Mark about the father who comes to the savior, hoping for healing for his son. And is he basically declares, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. What I love about this is there's that great talk from Elder Holland about holding the ground you've already won. And that to me is like setting up a game automatically. When I hear those phrases, I'm like, oh, there's a game that needs to happen. So we created a game this week that just involves dice and 
a big group of people. You could play with two people going against each other, or you could play on teams with a bunch of people at once. But to set it up, you're going to need three dice for each person. They don't necessarily have to match in color, although that makes it a little easier to keep track of things. But you need three dice for each person playing, and then you need some dividers. So we played this out on our kitchen table, and I just created dividers with knives. And well, you could use post-it notes, you could use almost anything that you have on hand. You just want something that you can lay down to create spaces. And then you need a prize of some kind. So you're going to take this jar and you're going to fill it with candy or treats or promises of, you know, curfew extensions or something. I don't know, whatever your kids would prize and put it in the jar and then you'll have all the equipment you need to play the game. And trust me, you don't want to miss this one. All right, that's your supplies list. Now for those of you in the course, we're going to go in a lot deeper. Hey guys, week 15 is a wrap. Thank you for being here. Those of you in the podcast or on YouTube, I'm grateful you're here. Those of you in the course, I hope you have fun this week with these object lessons. Just get into your scriptures. If all else fails, find a way to open up your scriptures and learn some of these doctrines. I think they dovetail in so beautifully with the words we read at conference. I hope you are richly fed this week as you study. If you have questions, you're welcome to join me on Instagram. That's Monday morning at 10 a.m. I'll pop on for a live and answer questions, talk through some of the insights that I missed, and go through the object lessons in a little bit more detail. So that's a good spot to find me if you can't, if you're not in the full course, but you want a little more information about what we do in the object lesson side. The other thing I would tell you is if you are in the course and you have questions, feel free to message me on the discussion boards or just reply back to that weekly email that you get. That should help. Those will come right to my inbox and it's a quick way to respond to me. But otherwise, I hope you really enjoy this week. Uh, as, as always, I would remind you that if you are listening to this in podcast form and you're a member of the course, there is a private podcast that you can access as well. So I have a public podcast that's the insights. It's freely available to anybody who wants to listen. And then there is another version that is a private podcast that's for those who are subscribers. That way you can listen to the insights and all the object lessons as you're out and about on the go. So again, if you need that link, just message me back either in a direct message on the course, like in the discussion boards, or just reply back to one of the emails you get in your inbox and I'll I'll hook you up. All right, you guys, that's it for week, teen, week, week 15. I hope you enjoyed it, and I'll see you on Monday. Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course. In the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So for since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.